thank you all for the fabric of silence and focus and the the interwoven Brahma Viharas, kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity. It's your practice that draws out what Michelle and I, how Michelle and I guide. What we say in the talks or in their interviews. So it's a mutual nurturing, which we appreciate a lot. Last last talk began an overview, basically talking about the fundamental sense of connection of metta, warmth of heart or tenderness of heart that we first touch in ourselves and then um, it's the source and force of connecting with everything and everyone else. And karuna or compassion is caring for the pain of life wherever we find it, wherever there's hurt, distress, anxiety. Murita or joy, which I'll talk about tonight. Joy wherever we find or experience or see happiness, delight, people's or beings, personal fulfillment, goodness, the response of the heart that way. And the upeka or compassion is the serene acceptance and non-identification, non-attachment to the whole range of joys and sorrows that all beings experience without exception. The capacity, the understanding, the peace that we can have from understanding the play of opposites pleasure, pain, praise, blame, honor, dishonor, gain and loss. So we've woven also this canopy of safety. Um, so it starts to feel in a way, at least inwardly, and especially when we begin to experience these the sublime states of loving kindness and compassion, joy, equanimity, it starts to feel like home. So it starts to feel like we're at home in our heart. You know, and there's like nothing for the moment are we missing out there because it all seems to be here. Uh, and a story from the time of the Buddha called a birth story. Uh, this this pasture or this ancestral land, uh, there grew a quail who came from a long ancestry of quails. And there was so much of the land that was his home that he was always able to go and discover something new. And he knew most everything. Every rock and clod of dirt and tree and glen and river and hills and so forth. It was, he lived in contentment and satisfaction. But one day he just got a little bored, you know, he forgot his meditation and he decided to explore outside his ancestral home, his domain. 
So he went into another area that was unknown, full of briars and stickers and a mysterious dark forest he was uncomfortable in. And he didn't know that for years on the cliff above this briar patch and strange land, there'd been a falcon just waiting for him to come off of his own ancestral home. So the falcon came down quickly and grabbed him with his talons and was flying back on the way to the cliff to have his meal of the quail. quail. The quail thought, boy, I wish I had meditated this morning. How am I going to get out of this? And he thought, well, you know, the falcon, falcons, a lot of falcons have a lot of arrogance, you know, and conceit. They think they're better than other birds and other animals. So I think I might be able to trick him. And I'll do it, and I'll do it, I'll try. So the quail said, oh, Mr. Falcon, you know, if I had been in my own home, my own ancestral land, you would never have been able to catch me. And then Falcon, Falcon was quiet a moment. Hmm, oh, so you think so? I'll put you back on your land. And because of his pride, his conceit, he took him back. Um, you know, but instead of dropping him by a forest or where it's big rocks and whatnot, and brush, and trees, put him right in the middle of one of the fields where it wouldn't be hard for him, just in case. Then he flew up to the clouds, and then with his telescopic eyes, he could see his target, and just came flying down, just jetting down. And at the very last moment, you know, Talon's coming out, totally ready to grab the quail, who hadn't moved, hadn't moved a, you know, micro-inch. But at that very last moment, he just simply stepped aside. You know, he knew there was a little hole behind him in the ground. He went into the hole, and there's just a big pile of feathers and falcon bones. And he came out, stood on top of the falcon, crossed his wings, and said, I've defeated my enemy. No one can catch me when I'm in my own domain, my own home, my ancestral land. And then the Buddha made the point of the story that, you know, what's our ancestral land? Well, it's our field of vision, an experience of seeing, hearing, uh, smelling, fragrances, taste, flavors, body sensation, in the mental realm of thoughts and emotions, the awareness of all of that, and the powerful protection of the Brahma Viharas the skill of connecting in kindness and power of compassion, either in its gentle or fierce nature, and the joy you know, of just being alive, of living, and the equanimity that, without which you know, he wouldn't have been able to think clearly to get himself back in his land. You know, so our land is our own experience. And the briar patch is when we get lost in conceptual thought our proliferation, the Pali word is papancha. The, the moment of sense imprint, you know, feeling the reality for that moment, but then elaborating, fabricating, embellishing thoughts about it, 
and soon we're way off and we're lost in thought. And, you know, that's how most people live their lives, a moment-to-moment interpretation of what their experience is, rather than a moment-to-moment direct experience. So that's what the Buddha meant by this lovely story. In the, in the old text, Murita, which is um, abiding in an enduring joy or empathetic joy, it's, it's such an unfettered, unbridled, pure kind of joy. In text, it's described uh, like, a, like a trumpeter standing on the top of a hill and blasting his trumpet you know, in all directions. Michelle can do that. She can make that sound, but I don't know if she will or not. <laughs> you often do it in your talks, you know. <laughs> That's right. That's how joy feels like. and it's how It affects oneself and everyone around you. <laughs> joy is an essence, you know. Uh, along with the other Ramaviharas. And, of course, it's always up with the other, other parts of our heart, the other Brahma-viharas, primal, a primal emotion, a primal spiritual emotion. And to reflect on that you know, makes the practice easier, makes the sense of polishing the tarnish off the brass uh, bowl uh, more understandable and allowing more patience. Because every so often we get that glimmer of joy, we get that glimmer of caring, compassion, a glimmer of peace, of equanimity, and so forth. So then we know it's there. You know, the tarnish may come back, but never as thick, never as difficult. You know, continue restoring that luminosity of heart and mind. The, the practice, therefore, of mudita is restorative. It's restorative of that kind of unbridled, unfettered, pure joy. Many of you have had it and may remember it and may not remember it. And maybe in practice it comes up. Um, you know, I grew up born and raised in Hawaii. And at age 11, we moved from one area, one area of this bay, Moana Lua Bay, um, down a couple of miles to be on the water. And in those days, there wasn't very much. It was pre-statehood. So there wasn't, it was, the whole population of all seven islands was like under 200,000 people. So I remember shortly after we moved there, just standing and the sea was on one side, and the other side, which now has you know development and homes, was just the purity of the it's called the Ko'olau Mountains range, running from the north of Oahu all the way down to the south east area where I grew up. And I was just standing there, noticing that. And this is that time, you know, post-war. Uh, the Eisenhower years, where everything was supposed to be now good, you know, and jolly. And we were told that on our TV programs. And, you know, anyone under probably 50 or 40 
won't ever have heard of Ozzie and Harriet or Leave it to Beaver or Father Knows Best, but you can Google it. You can Google it later and find out. But they were the TV programs. You know, in Hawaii, we got our first TVs in 1954. So, you know, it was like six or seven. And started watching all of that. And so, you know, before this moment of being 11, that was, uh, that was a sense of being told, you know, how we're supposed to live or what we were supposed to be or become. You know, the somebody that we would one day be as school and parents and life was teaching us. All of a sudden, it's like all of that, everything vanished. Somehow, between the sea and the mountains, our family home, you know, the street lamp, um, anything that that I had held conceptually and that uh, re- reflected or mirrored who I thought I was as an 11-year-old kid, just vanished. And all I can say, it was like a, a spontaneous grace of this unfettered joy. It's like stepping into a completely different dimension. Nothing else had any meaning whatsoever. Not family, parents, sisters, school. You know, there was a sense of sea and mountain and then this, this abiding in this joy. And, you know, and in this young, tender age, all I knew that this was, this, was, this was something really meaningful, more meaningful than anything that had ever happened, and that I should remember it. So I remember standing there, you know, aware of the sea and aware of the mountains, and then repeating at least a hundred times, I am 11, I am 11, I am 11, I am 11. Never forget this, never forget this, never forget this, never forget this. I am 11, I am 11, over and over again. So I never forgot it. (laughs) At least um, I did, but in early days of meditation, you know, some 40 years ago, I remembered it very clear. As, As you all know, you sit here and you remember, you know, advertisements on TV 10, 20 years ago. You have no idea what it's doing there. Some voice out of your past, a schoolmate or parent or, you know, what's that doing there? You know, there it is for no reason at all. That's the kind of joy. That's that essential part of our heart. It's childlike, exuberant, you know, not exuberance, childlike, pure, spontaneous um, joy. You know, like you might feel when you see Prince and Wrangler, the horses, just um, cantering or galloping across the green grass and then rolling in the grass. And, you know, this, that sight, that sense, that wildness this, causes this awe and this joy and this wonder in the mind and the heart. It was for me both a blessing and a curse. Because it told me that I didn't have the understanding to know what it's about. And then, you know, and then it was over. And then I was back in my school and in my family and with friends. But, but never fully. And I didn't understand that. I felt a little separate. You know, and what I would later come to know as a kind of um, detachment. Maybe sometimes a, a healthy non-attachment. Maybe sometimes dissociation. I don't know, but it, it just made it kind of difficult f- 
for, the, you know, until I was about 16. And other experiences came. The first time I saw the word Dharma and, you know, through Jack Kerouac's books, um, On the Road, or Dharma Bums and so forth. It was a different kind of Dharma, of course, if you know those books. Uh, but it was, um, it was uh, you know, it was wild and experiential, something that uh, also took one, uh, allowed one to step aside from the way the culture was woven together and what we were supposed to believe and what we were you know, taught that we should become, the somebody that we should eventually you know, manifest. So the blessing was that it remained as a potential um, further awakening in later memory, but it was made it really difficult, you know. And today, you know, we know so much more about how how to parent you know, kids like Pasha and how to mirror that joy and, and their goodness and their spontaneity and their and their fun. You know, Pasha and I were just talking about uh, having fun. And I, I started to move out of my room here to give the talk really, really slowly. And I said, you know, this is fun to move really slowly. And he said, well, you can't have fun. You get to give the Dhamma talk in 10 minutes. <laughs> and I said, you know, it's more worth having fun than doing anything else. Don't ever forget that. So remember that. Yeah? Good. So the rest of my, you know, until I was a teenager, until we became a state and all the money poured in for infrastructure and then we became a tourist destination, you know, everything changed. So I, you know, I held on for my refuge to the sea, to the surf, you know, big wave surfing and uh, bamboo forests and, you know, all the cool things that we could do in Hawaii at that time as we saw it change, as we saw it begin to change so quickly, developments and and the beauty being mowed or caterpillared down. So part of that kind of feeling lost for years, um, you know, also was the journey that I realized difficult later, you know, those difficult times, feelings of alienations are not being understood and are not feeling seen, you know, valued. Because that's how that joy lives. That's what it's nurtured on. That's how it grows. So there's a lot of sense of, you know, the world of darkness and sorrow from an early age, you know, that we still can know, but now with more wisdom and compassion and equanimity. This is a poem from William Stafford. If you don't know the kind of person I am, and I don't know the kind of person you are, a pattern that others made may prevail in the world. And following the wrong God home, we may miss our star. For there is many a small betrayal in the mind, a shrug that lets the fragile sequence break, sending with shouts the horrible errors of childhood, storming out, to play through the broken dike. For it is important that awake people be awake, or a breaking line may discourage them back to sleep. The signals we give, yes, no, maybe, should be clear. 
the darkness around us is deep. That's why we uh, emphasize a lot knowing near and far enemies. You know, because without that knowing, without that understanding, they, they remain like following the wrong God home and putting us back into a spiritual slumber. As we understand them, we also at the same time grow the space of the compassion, of the joy, of that wisdom and equanimity and connection of metta and so forth. And if we, if we, if we consider realistically, honestly, um, most, of the being, most of the people in the world are afraid of spirituality, the spiritual goodness. They're afraid to touch it because maybe they, they lost it and you know, did follow the wrong God home and so forth did get put back into a slumber. Uh, last October, I was flying to Australia where m- me and, and I do a retreat in the Blue Mountains there. And at the airport, I grabbed this uh, paper, Bangkok Post, picture of Aung San Suu Kyi. And this other um, powerful uh, public figure in the world, Christine Lagarde, she's the um, head of, she runs the International Monetary Fund. And at that time, Suu Kyi was first time in 26 years uh, leaving Burma and going around and collecting a, a rain of awards and so, so forth around the world. And at this time, she was in, at the plaza in New York at a special award convention. And it was Christine Lagarde of the IMF, who is presenting her with a, a Global Citizen Award. You forgot to remind me to bring the magnifying glass. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'll do my best. Okay. So the award was presented to her by the International Monetary Fund Managing Director Christine Lagarde at a dinner at the New York's Plaza Hotel. And Christine Lagarde said, I don't get intimidated easily. Politics, money, power, economy, crisis. She said, you know, I'm not intimidated by any of that. But I will tell you something. When it's resilience in the face of adversity, when it's simplicity in the face of success, when it's kindness, when it's spirituality, I get unbelievably intimidated. I'm intimidated to introduce tonight Aung San Suu Kyi. That says a lot, you know, about our lives, about most people's lives, and um, and what you know what the work is that we have to do. That's most helpful, most helpful to people near and far, who whoever can hear, and if they can't. That's where our compassion and equanimity come into play. Um, Because we can't control the causes and conditions that bring out external things. We can't control other people. But as Michelle said, we can learn to respond skillfully. You know, and and these qualities of the connection of kindness and um, the care of compassion toward pain and 
the joy toward any kind of happiness and delight that we experience, and the serenity and peace and wisdom of equanimity. Those are our ways that we can help no matter what's happening. You know, the horror and the beauty that's on our, going on in our planet. You know, as we teach around the world in all these different places, it's people like you that we meet. And, it, it, you know, it keeps me away from too much news, TV and newspapers, because it's people like you that, that make me feel that that fabric of the universe will be held together, you know, won't collapse because of your kindness and your compassion, your capacity and your expression of this empathetic joy and, um, and, and the, the peacefulness of your wide, calm, serene, equanimous mind and heart. From a young age, people can um, learn out of cat- tragedy and catastrophe. So, almost nine years ago, um, I was very closely involved in the um, uh, Southeast Asian tsunami, uh, December 26, 2004, at uh, 10.20. The earthquake uh, in Indonesia happened at 8 o'clock, and the 36-foot waves you know, hit this island called Golden Buddha Island, where I I, I stay. I have a, a, a beach home uh, since the tsunami. But I had first gone there the year before and met some of the people and then taught her a couple of retreats there during that year. <clears throat> I liked the manager and uh, became friends, close friends, with a, a German man who had invited in all the yogis you know, the night before our retreat and fed us all, kind of partied. And then there, we did our serious, you know, seven or eight day retreat. And then he invited us back and did his home again. And he was one of my friends, you know, who was lost in the tsunami. And another friend, he's a father of four kids. And his wife and the four kids survived. And another friend, um, uh, this woman I'm going to talk about, uh, Elisa from Italy. She and her brother and her father survived, but her mother wasn't able to hold on to a tree. Ellie, our friend, was able to hold on to this small tree with her hands, you know, being washed back and forth. She said like a flag going back and forth with the waves, holding on with her might. You know, she had been in her her little um, cottage, beach cottage, when the wave hit it, and all she remembers is this explosion of wood and timber and water. And the next thing, she was holding onto the tree, and she never had a single scratch on her from, from anything. And, and a lot, lot of other friends, amazing stories of their survival and injuries and broken bones, and, or they came out okay. And, you know, it's a life-changing event. So... That's when I met um, the families of the people I knew. We had a Buddhist ceremony burning the bodies for, for four, four of the people that we spent a week 
you know, finding in, in the forests and along the, in, buried in the sand and whatnot. And I, I, I knew three of them and one really well. Um, and Ellie, at the time, Elisa was 16, and, and she gave the eulogy for her mother. I don't think I'll ever hear something more beautiful and profound um, in my life. You know, she was just, she was still grieving and there was tears, but he, she spoke really, really clearly. And she spoke in Italian because at, at that time her father and her brother didn't know the English that they know now well, nine years later. And then another good friend, an Italian friend who grew up in um, Italian area of southern Switzerland and spoke many languages um, very articulately. So he, he, he heard and he felt and he understood from the inside of her words and her emotions exactly what she was trying to say. And because he's also an actor, you know, it was like listening to her when, when he translated my friend. And uh, we were all around there, you know, a couple of hundred of us, part of the ceremony. She spoke of her mother as her best friend and mentor who saw her inner being, her inner joy, and never once, you know, charged her to become anyone or anything or any person, but just to be herself and follow her own experience and her own um, intuition and knowing. So it was far more than a mother-daughter relationship. It was a profound friendship and mentor relationship. So all that came out in such a way, you know, all of us just um, weeping at that. And then, and then I became really close with the kids of these two families, the four kids who lost their father, and Ellie and her brother who lost their mom. Uh, and every year on Boxing Day, December 26th, I'm there leading the meditation uh, for the group of people, usually 15 or 20. Um, probably be a hundred next year on the tenth anniversary. And um and then since then, you know, Michelle also has met Elisa and we've brought her to this uh, retreat that we teach in a tropical rainforest on a lake in Thailand. And we've also brought her to Hawaii to uh, on Vipassana Hawaii land to do a, a retreat. And she's, she's learned a lot about the Dhamma and a lot about the Brahma Viharas. And, you know, it's, um, it's, just, it's beautiful to see how she holds what happened. And this last year she gave me a, a book for Christmas by uh, the Japanese uh, 17th century Zen master and poet Basho, and, uh, which is, I'll read a few poems from that a little later if there's time about the moon because tonight is full moon it'll peak out about 745 over this ridge here and so I, I really I looked at this book and was really enjoying it and liking it and and I came to this one page and it was a, the poem number 129 and she said she looked in my eyes she said that's my favorite you know, it says everything to me in, in the way I know her and saw her grow up this last nine years. And the poem is simply, Come, 
see real flowers of this painful world. Come, see real flowers from this painful world. For many, many years, she was, of course, in a lot of pain. And and along with others, you know, just being there and mentoring her. And every year at Christmas, we'd all be together and the day after Christmas, do that thing. And, you know, there'd be tears. And then over the years, mixing some laughter with the tears. And then she's done these retreats. And you know, she's been able to balance more the loss, the sorrow, the pain, and begin to see the beauty of things and you know, um, a different kind of relationship with the, with the world that's allowed her to go on where she's happy, you know, she's actually really happy and she pulls in everything she got transmitted from her mother and the way she was mirrored by her mother. She has no bad memories of her. And, uh, you know, Michelle was remarking this last year how, you know, how she's really matured now and, and feels like she has direction and sense of purpose. It's kind of wonderful to see. So th- this particular Brahma Vihara, um, remembering that they all come up whenever we practice one of them, but if we turn our you know, mindful focus and intend to abide or call up one of them, this one is um, the heart infused with a consciousness of joy uh, and, uh, and empathy wherever we see happiness. Um, in, the, in the text, it's described as the heart's response to, to happiness is the dancing of the heart, the singing of the heart, the celebration of the heart in resonance with happiness, with delight in the world. And, you know, with compassion, I don't know if I remember to say it, it's called the trembling of the heart in that attunement with pain. You know, our heart trembles because it, it directly understands and, and feels the other person's pain but without identifying with it. That beautiful, caring, sweet quality of compassion. Flushed, you know, with an empathy, that is a real sensation. So the way we've been trying to learn to, to feel all these qualities that come up, the near enemy, the far enemy, the actual sensation connection and friendliness of metta, you know, and the grief and the sorrow near enemy of compassion and the far opposite manipulation, cruelty, control, trying to control experience. Feel those as sensations in the body and the mind. And then the real pure uh, karuna of wise compassion, you know, gentle or fierce in its formation as needed. So the same with this enduring or empathetic joy, the, the near enemy is um, like over-exuberance, um, a, attachment to the joy. It's more like, rather than you know, waiting to grow or cultivate that, that grace of spontaneous joy that I was speaking of, this, this, this pure mudita, the near enemy is more like chasing more 
uh, temporary joys, you know, ones that aren't as enduring, you know, and, and it becomes a habit, it becomes like an addiction. So however we chase it obsessively, you know, books or drugs or TV or uh, love interests or anything, we can have this um, sort of disconnect way of pursuing it. That's like the near enemy. That's the masquerade of this pure joy that is not dependent on anything happening outside. It's not dependent on pleasant sights and sounds and sensations. It's just joy in and of itself. And then it just attunes, whether it's a bird or a horse or um, a person in, in laughter or in some fulfillment in their life growing into what they do best, dance or write or sing or be a friend or be a partner or create or teach, you know, whatever it is that we we do best, serving the planet and so forth. So trying to feel, you know, the sensations of that more attached joy and uh, addictive chasing of things, uh, exuberance that's masking the real joy and then also recognizing the opposite which is labeled as envy and ill will uh, actually envy and jealousy but it's based in ill will envy and jealousy is the opposite of being able to enjoy other people's happiness goodness fulfillment you know we want to have that is jealousy we don't want them to have that is envy and to, to, feel, to feel that sensation is really important. We all have had it. But have we really felt it mindfully, you know, opened the body to it, surrounded it with metta and compassion? It hurts. You look at it closely, you know, to want something from, that someone else has or to want them not to have what they have, that happiness, is painful. So if we bring a sensitive metta aware, or mindful awareness, compassion awareness... We will know what it feels like when it's the opposite. It will guide us back to feel the true sensation of, of empathetic joy, enduring joy. It's unbridled joy for just being alive. This childlike, spontaneous grace of joy. It can be helpful to understand um, where envy and jealousy come from. Uh, and states like them, like the comparing mind. Uh, the Buddha called it um, the mana, which is a word for conceit. And conceit in Buddhist, Buddhist psychology is any kind of comparing. I'm better than, I'm, I'm, I'm the same as, I'm worse than. Any kind of comparing is a self-referencing, you know, it's a sort of ego, play, ego game and play of mind. You know, I, I want to be um, better than that person or I feel worse than that person or we're equal. All of that is comparing. Michelle and I um, in a, spent a lot of time s- studying Western and Buddhist psychology and I, I came across this book from one of my mentors, um, a Jungian spiritual there, a psychotherapist. The book is um, um, from were friends of his at, from the University of Chicago, where where he studied 
Peter and Anne Ustinov, and the book's called Cinderella and Her Sisters. And it describes where envy and jealousy comes from. And it comes from a deep sense of shame. And shame is that place that we feel when we don't get mirrored our goodness, our gold, our beauty, when we're young. And we start hiding that. And we start thinking everything's our fault, or we're unable to do things, or we're not good, or we're not good enough, or we're unworthy, undeserving. You know? And so from a very young age, we begin to fold up that spirit of joy, that, that grace, that expression childlike spontaneity and and in all the stackings that come of events where we feel judged or criticized we turn it in on ourselves and keep suppressing that place that deep place of um, pure goodness and joy so the shame that people feel because they can't connect with their own goodness makes them want to steal yours makes them want to steal our goodness. It's a very powerful thing in this world. And whatever you're really good at, you know, and whatever level people see you being good at something, or looking the way you look, dressing the way you dress, or being as intelligent as you are, you know, all your skills or all your ways of expression and manner People who compare that with themselves, they, they may have the same potential, but not see it. So they want yours. And you often don't feel it. It's like it's invisible. And you, you just feel it as a sudden poison. And your body feels heavy and unhealthy. You don't know what's going on. You know, that's how this, this invisible theft works. They're trying to get our goodness. To understand that, then we can protect ourselves with fierce compassion, with equanimity, with, with learning, if we like this person, to start connecting with their goodness that they may not even know they have. But still, we try our best to do it. I was going to say, you know, in addition to feeling the joy of Prince and Wrangler cantering around. Too bad he left. I was going to say, you know, Pasha wailing around on his bike and his helmet in his new cool pink T-shirt that says, says tough guys like pink. <laughs> if he was still here, he would have shown it off. But I, I forgot that. I missed that. I don't really look at these notes um, except to take a breath or something. Um, Doubt, delusion, confusion, they're the, they're the source of not seeing clearly, you know, of, of, of this expression of envy and jealousy uh, rooted in shame and so forth. So there's many ways to trace it back. Because sometimes when we feel caught in a doubt cloud, we will, start, we will feel shame, we will feel unempowered. We will feel incapacitated or, you know, not good or not good enough. Doubt's a powerful hindrance. It's like this fog or cloud that, that covers many other difficult mental states. Uh, and, and so doubt can be paralyzing to the whole practice. 
uh, I was caught by it for a couple of weeks with my teacher Upandita um, in the monastery as a, as a monk. And I didn't even know how to tell him what was going on with my practice. You know, I, I would attempt to say what was happening watching the rising falling and and the and the walking the other postures and activities but i you know i didn't feel really connected to it and he he could see that so on the, maybe the next interview or so he said um he said your uh your, your practice is now caught by doubt but you're not going to be able to see doubt for a while because it's a thick fog it's you know it's this nature to hide things to cover to veil uh, but it's like a, a yarn uh, a ball of yarn so all you need to do at first is try to get one string of it so I went out and practiced and I saw loneliness because I did feel lonely and then again I'd go out and do walking or something and I would feel longing you know because I longed for my home I missed my bed and my pillow and my papaya and, you know, mangoes and things and all this new strange food and all that. You know, kind of the stories would build and I learned how to separate the story from the actual tone of longing or loneliness or fear. And each of these is a different string, disappointment, shame. Um, And slowly the yarn became unraveled with all these different qualities of aversion or attachment, wanting this or wanting the shame or wanting to leave or wanting sex or not wanting, afraid, going to my meditation cell and weeping and so forth. And, and eventually it unraveled enough to know the sensation, the confusion, the fog of doubt. And that's a good way to approach it. Pasha, will you just stand up for a minute? People want to see your t-shirt. Turn around. I can see your t-shirt. Good. When that um, the pre-state time growing up in Hawaii, I um, there wasn't much infrastructure, as I said. So when we had rainstorms, everything would flood. No one could drive. Water was this high and whatnot. And the river from the mountains down to the sea would be really swollen and come pouring down with mountain mud um, mixed with the sand and the seawater. My friends and I would play and get all muddy, head to toe. And one time I brought my mother's tin pans out, pie pans, and made a mud pie with shells and coconuts, you know, for raisins and condiments and whatnot. And I... And I took one of them back to show my mom and came into the kitchen door dripping mud all over my body and from the pan and whatnot. And um, you know, all we need is a moment of, of mirroring, of saying, well, oh, Stevie, that's beautiful. What a nice mud pie. <laughs> and she, my mother was a kind person and she was never abusive. And so uh, it wasn't abuse and it wasn't ignoring, but it wasn't mirroring. She just said, Steve, you're dripping mud. Why don't you take the mud pie outside and then hose yourself down? But I just needed her to say your mud pie is good because at that age, we put our sense of worthiness, 
We put our sense of value. We put our goodness into our creation. And we need that mirroring. We still do. From our parents, our teachers, our friends, our partners, our children, whatever. Still, every time we get that, it grows that worthiness, empowers our sense of value. Just being alive, just being human. So the mud pie thing, just think of how many ways that happens once we start to hide that gold or goodness and cover it up. Uh, the hundreds and thousands of other ways that that happens in our lifetime continue to stack until we don't even know we have it or barely know we have it. You know, and that's a real stuck, we call that karmic knots, Michelle and I. There are often various kinds of sensations in the body or sensations and emotions that, that are old. And they can be pre-verbal old. They can be pre-this-life old. Or, you know, in our ancestral lineage or genetic lineage, if you don't have a much of an understanding of karma. It's just old. And the healing is approaching it with this pre-verbal kindness and connection of awareness and this genuine joy when it comes out. A student of ours um, had a hard time with Vipassana years ago, maybe 20 years ago, uh, in the spring, um, when we taught a two-month retreat on the East Coast. So it came back in the fall when, where we taught a three-month retreat. Um, and, he, and we talked, and we decided that he would do the Brahma Vihara practice first time in his life. And it was a beautiful um, process to turn out. And he, he sent me this letter. It's very old. I should get it copied. Because it's going to tear, see? And you could go. You can help me copy it in the office. Uh, okay. Mia will show you how. So he writes in this, Yesterday, settling into a sense of deep concentration, Listening to Steve speaking of getting a glimpse of our gold, of our true nature, going deep inside and catching just a glimmer of the gold that has always been there. Tears again. Sitting for several hours, deeply concentrated on the benefactor, I shift the flow of metta from dear friend to friend to neutral to difficult person, shifting back to the benefactor, then a surge of loving-kindness. I see my own face with the clarity of a photograph take the place of his image. I had long ago stopped trying to send metta to myself, unable to generate any feeling of love. I began to say the phrases, and suddenly a rush of loving-kindness, orders of magnitude greater than anything I had experienced before. It came in waves, washing over me and lasting for some minutes. This continued for him for some days. And so he goes on. Um, It was as if the experience of finally receiving metta myself had given me access to a source of loving kindness that had no limits. Later, I went on to practice and began to see in the walking practice, I began to see that everything was happening, was unfolding on its own. And the more I was able to surrender to it, the more powerful it was. But something had been set in motion. 
And I was in awe of the process of this practice, which was unfolding in me, in me, in me. I walked with tears streaming down my face. May it never end. And finally, he says, Yesterday, sitting with the joy of total connection and suddenly noticing the presence of myself as a small child, how it was to feel complete, uninhibited love for another. No baggage, no fear, no holding back. Sitting with the innocence of this child as he gazed in rapture at the benefactor. Unconditional love pouring from his heart. To be blessed with this experience again 45 years later. And suddenly the realization that in spite of thinking all these years that I had killed that child in an effort to protect him, there he was saying over and over, I didn't die, I didn't die, tears streaming down my cheeks. Everything is the same, but nothing will ever be the same again. So I'm going to have to finish the mudita in a couple of nights, but because it's full moon night, no, I'm just going to read a couple of poems about the moon. Is that okay? About the moon, the full moon that we're going to watch a little later. Okay? So, this is Basho again. There's a. I thought you said Pasha. No, Basho. You'll write one of these one day. We'll say Pasha. Cuckoo! Moonlight. Moonlight. Cuckoo, moonlight, binds the thick bamboo. And another, taro leaves, beyond the village, a poor farmer waits the moon. And then, while moon sets atop the trees, leaves cling to rain. Then another, banana leaves hanging Round my hut must be moon viewing. Poor boy leaves moon viewing for rice grinding. <laughs> Think of meditation like rice grinding, because when you're out there walking, you'll, you'll be forced to look at the moon at times, I'm sure. And then the last couple. Bright moon, I stroll around the pond. Hey, dawn has come. And finally, you know, and this makes me chuckle, clouds, a a chance to dodge moon watching. (laughs) (laughs) Let's just go to the inner moon watching place for a moment. Think of that uh, deep place of joy, worthiness, goodness, spontaneity, beauty, creativity, as the moon shining from our depth, from our heart, soothing the pain of shame and unworthiness. May these beautiful 
Brahma-vihara qualities continue to grow on their own, on their own 